Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis-Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn, and in today's interview, I'm talking to Carrie McAllister about sailing on the tall ship Elissa out of Galveston, Texas, in the USA. Now, of course, most of us spend our days on dry land within the walls of our offices and our homes. But I think many of us understand the call of the sea. And I certainly love to walk by the sea and I love bodies of water. I think, you know, I I, I live in Bath, which is not by the sea, but we have a canal and we have a river. So I'm often walking on the water. But I think um, sailing and just being out on the ocean is so just different. And in this interview, Carrie talks about her love of sailing and how it's given her confidence to work on the Alyssa as well as adventure away from her office day job. Now, I talked about my own tall ship sailing experience from Fiji to Vanuatu in episode one. And I travelled halfway around the world to sail on that tall ship. But Carrie found a way to sail in the same city where she works. So you don't have to go across the world to experience escape from your daily life. Sometimes you can find it close to home. Now, I also love that we talk about building confidence and climbing the rigging and working aloft as you swing out over the ocean. And I certainly was never able to conquer that fear, but I was only on the boat for a week or something. So a couple of weeks. And um, Carrie talks about sort of building up that confidence. And sometimes travel is about facing your fears and trying something new. And it's also about learning new skills and a new language. And sailing certainly has those things, as well as body confidence. I think one of the biggest things about office work is we we spend so much time in our heads that we forget we have this body that can do things, that can climb things and, um, you know, bend down and stretch and pull ropes and uh, do all of that. And I think that is part of why I love to travel so much. It reminds me that my physical body helps me do stuff in the world, which I love. Uh, Carrie and I also talk about being introverts and why we love bow watch, which is when you sit on the front of the boat and uh, watch for danger, which doesn't often happen. (laughs) Plus, we also compare the ocean with deserts, both features of Texas and both places uh, that we enjoy. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Carrie. Carrie McAllister is a neuropharmacologist and life sciences consultant. She's also a volunteer crew member on the tall ship Elissa out of Galveston, Texas, and an instructor in the seamanship training program. And today we're talking about sailing and tall ships in particular. So hi, Carrie. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joanna. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, I'm very excited. So first off, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into sailing. Sure. Well, first, I have a confession to make. I don't actually know how to sail a normal sailboat. (laughs) Um, A 205-foot-long tall ship, yes. But the little boats, I've just never done it. I didn't grow up around sailing. 
I'm originally from Phoenix, Arizona, which is the middle of a desert. And maybe that's why, but I've always been really just in love with water. Anytime we'd go to the pool, visits to California, I'm in the, in the water, at the beach. Like, I've just always loved water because it was never a constant part of my life. Um, but sailing was something that I knew that people did, but it was never part of my experience. So it never occurred to me that, hey, I could maybe one day go out and learn how to sail a boat. Then when I was about 10 or 11 years old, I read this book called The True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle. And the basic premise of the book is there's this 12-year-old girl, Victorian girl, very well-bred, and she sails on her father's merchant ship across the Atlantic to join the rest of her family. But through circumstances, she ends up um, unchaperoned, completely alone, in the middle of a crew that's about to mutiny. And at one point, she sides with the crew against the captain, and the captain's like, well, fine, you love the crew so much, you're no longer a passenger, you have to be part of the crew. But the crew don't want her either. She's this delicate little flower who's never worked a day in her life. So they tell her, okay, if you want to be part of our crew, you have to climb all the way up to the Royal, which is the highest yard on the ship, and back down. If you can do that, you're one of us. So she does it. And she's terrified the whole way. She almost falls at one point, but she's determined and she does it. And by the end of the book, she's this completely different person, very confident, knows who she is, knows what she wants out of life. And I loved this book so much. I really, really identified with that character. And I wish I could say it changed my life at that point, but it didn't because I was 11. And, you know, still super introverted. I would still much rather sit down and read a book rather than go out and experience what I was reading about. So my life just kind of continued on the way it was. And I went to school, went to grad school. And about halfway through grad school, I went to San Diego uh, for a conference. And the convention center is just down the street from the San Diego Maritime Museum, which is a fantastic museum. At that time, they had two tall ships that you could go and visit. Um, those ships are still there. Now they have a couple more. And so I dragged a friend of mine down there, and I was just so happy and so excited and geeking out to finally be on a real tall ship. At this point, I'd read Patrick O'Brien's Aubrey Matron series at least twice. So <laughs> I was like a kid in a candy store, you know, and thinking to myself the whole time, like, I wish I could do this. I wish I could sail a ship like this. How exciting would that be? Now, eight years later to the day, I was back on one of the ships there, the Star of India, sailing her as guest crew. And if you told me that that would happen, there's no way I would have believed it. I would have said, no, you're crazy. I can't do that. I'm a normal person. Um, so cut forward a few years later, I finally graduate and I moved down to Galveston for my first real job after getting my PhD. And the first thing I discovered when I moved to Galveston, I didn't know anything about the city or the island before I moved there, was that the Galveston Historical Foundation owns a historic tall ship, the Alyssa, and you can be a volunteer on the ship. You can work on the ship, you can climb on the ship, and if you go through the sail training program, you can actually sail the ship. So that sort of my journey, once I fell, uh, found Alyssa, I fell in love with her. And now I don't know if I can ever leave. <laughs> I love that story because basically it was a book that got you into yep. into tall ships, which I just love. And we'll come back on those um, some of those different things. But I want, in case people don't know, what is a tall ship and what sets it apart from other sailing boats that people might have in their mind? 
Well, a tall ship is sort of a catch-all phrase for a lot of different specific types of ships. Um, but basically, it's a traditional, traditionally rigged sailing vessel. So the image you have in your mind is a ship with masts and yards and sails and rope rigging. That's a tall ship. Yeah. So if so, if people think of a historical, um, a historical film, are there any films that might bring it to people's mind, or a, a way that we can evoke an image? Yeah. So I hate to bring pirates into the conversation, but the Pirates of the Caribbean use actual existing tall ships for those films. Um, I know some of the people who were involved with that. And a few years ago, Russell Crowe came out with a movie based on Patrick O'Brien's books called Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. So that's a great film to watch if you want to see a tall ship in action. Oh, great. They're really good. I think everyone can now see it in their mind. And I think mm-hmm. the point is as well, like you said at the beginning, you, it's not something you can do on your own. It, it needs a full crew, right? So how, how big, um, how many people do you need to, to, to sail a tall ship, say the Alyssa? Well, it depends on the ship. Um, Historically, if you were talking about a naval ship, a line of battle ship, you had hundreds of crew because you needed people both to fight and sail at the same time and maneuver very quickly. For a merchant ship like Alyssa was, there's not a lot of maneuvering that you need to do. You're basically sailing across the ocean on a single tack, and maybe you change tacks once or twice. So you don't actually need that much crew. And Alyssa's original crew was only eight people. Mm. What we do when we sail is we take about 30 crew because we have fun with the boat. We play with her. We want a lot of people to sail. Um, But originally, eight people is all she needed. Wow. And I mean, I've, uh, and I, I've talked about this on, on another show that I did earlier, and I know, which I know you've heard about the tall ship I went on, the Soren Larsen. Uh-huh. Um, but one of the, the things is, I mean, when you're on the deck, there's quite a lot of room, right? You feel like you're up in the air. But when you go below deck, it's quite crammed. So I wondered, give us a sense of what it's like below deck and whether or not you've slept down there and, and what's the difference, I guess. Yeah, it's definitely more cramped below decks. Um, Alyssa actually has bulkheads in place, watertight bulkheads, as a safety improvement that we've done during her restoration. So it feels even more cramped because we have different compartments. And the bilges are accessible through another deck, through trap doors. And it's a little claustrophobic if you need to do any work down there. The bilges are definitely not my favorite place to be. But anytime you've got a lot of people sleeping in close, close proximity to each other after a full day of doing physical work, it gets a little stuffy. <laughs> and smelly. <laughs> and a little smelly. There's not a lot of air movement down there. And I've slept on board uh, many times while we're underway. And, you know, you it's like anything. You get used to it. The first night's kind of a, a bit of a culture shock. But then you get used to it. Yeah, and it's um, bunks. Is it, is it bunks in, in that ship? We have bunks, yeah. Yeah, because I think, when again, people might have an image in their mind of some luxurious <laughs> room, but it's no. not really a room, is it? <laughs> no, it's uh, about a dozen bunks all crammed together. We have privacy curtains that are just cloths hung over line. 
it's not exactly it's not it's not glamorous no it's not and but I think that's part of almost the attraction I mean um but I, I want to just circle back to uh the idea of desert versus water um so tell us a bit more about Galveston because it's in Texas now I'm in the UK I have been to Austin Texas but Texas in many people's mind has this sort of desert uh cowboy idea so what what's interesting about Galveston yeah so first of all Texas is big. If you overlay the map of Texas onto Europe, it takes up like half of Europe. So there's actually quite a lot of different landscape throughout the whole state. And the stereotype is, just like you said, pretty deserty, lots of cowboys, cows, skulls, things like that. <laughs> and the western and southern parts of the state are pretty deserty. Uh, but Galveston is just off the coast of Houston, so the southeastern part of the state. It's a barrier island. Um, and it's pretty swampy. There's bayous. Houston has a lot of pine trees, which really surprised me the first time I came down. It's a very wet and humid atmosphere. So the complete opposite of a desert. I mean, it gets hot, but it's 80% humidity with the heat. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I look, went to look at it on a map, and I think that's what's so cool. When you said about this, I was like, oh, I just wouldn't have thought there'd be a tall ship in Texas. So it's, it's almost quite weird. So, how, so right. why, why did the Alyssa end up in Galveston? So it's a pretty cool story. Um, she was built in 1877 in Aberdeen, Scotland, and spent most of her life as a merchant ship, <clears throat> sailing all over the world. She actually touched at Galveston twice, once in 1883 and once in 1886 was sold through several owners, several different countries owned her, and in the 1960s, she ended up in a scrapyard in Greece and just sort of languished there. Now, at that time, the Galveston Historical Foundation had been thinking about building a replica of the pirate John Lafitte's ship because mm. he had a pirate colony on the Galveston Island in the early 1800s. But a couple of guys from GHF were over in Greece, and they saw this ship sitting in a scrapyard that had the lines of a tall ship. Her masts were gone. She'd been completely downrigged. Um, her bow had been, the shape of the bow had been changed. But they said, hey, that looks like a tall ship. Went and checked her out and found the builder's nameplate in brass below decks, which says Alyssa 1877 Alexander and Hall Company, which was a shipbuilder. So they dug into the research, into the history, found out that she'd visited Galveston twice, and that was enough of a connection. So JHF bought her, started the restoration in Greece, then towed her across the Atlantic home to Galveston, finished the restoration, and in 1982, she was sailing again. Ah, it is so interesting to hear to hear that it was, you know, in Europe. And I, I, this happens so much with the his, historical things, isn't it? They're kind of left and then someone finds them again. But you mentioned John Lafitte there, um, mm -hmm. who, and I've been to New Orleans. And of course, that has, John Lafitte there um, is famous for the pirate stuff and being in the bayou. And you've, you've sailed the boat to New Orleans, haven't you? Yeah, last year it was pretty exciting. Um, through the hard work of our Texas Seaport Museum staff and a few of our volunteers, we worked with the organization Tall Ships America and the Coast Guard and the Navy and a whole bunch of other organizations and put on the first ever Gulf Coast Tall Ships Challenge. So we had five other tall ships from around the world come to Galveston. We had a festival, a parade of ships, and then the whole fleet sailed to Pensacola, Florida for another festival out there, and then sailed to New Orleans for one more festival before sailing home to Galveston. 
So unfortunately, I have this thing called a job where <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I have to work and I couldn't sail for the whole voyage. So I met the ship in New Orleans and worked at the festival there and then sailed her home. Wow, that's very cool. Um, so I wondered also, just coming back to the desert and the water, because I love desert as well, and I lo also love being on the water. And I wondered if you had any thoughts, given that you're you know, from Arizona and you love the water, what, what are some of the similarities, do you think, between desert and water when it comes to being out there? Yeah, so I mean, I'm like you, I love the desert and I love the water. I think the desert is one of the most beautiful natural landscapes out there, especially the American Southwest. And I really do see a similarity between the desert and the ocean. They're, very, they're both very harsh, unforgiving environments where it's almost man versus nature and they're very unchanging. So there's not a lot of weather or, you know, things that happen quickly in the desert and Oceans have storms, but at the same time, the ocean is very unchanging. It's very constant. And it's just this really interesting dichotomy. One is dry, one is wet. You know, you've got the superficial similarities. But for me, the desert is like exposing the bones of the earth. And you can really see the shape of the land. Whereas the ocean is the depths of the land or the depths of the earth. There are two extremes. Mm. And it's interesting because you mentioned you're an introvert and you love reading and uh, I am too. And I mean, possibly many of the listeners who are interested in books <laughs> uh, also are. I mean, I found when I was on the tall ship, even though there are, um, you have to be with a crew, I found it quite good for an introvert because uh, especially doing the watches, for example, kind of looking out to sea in case there's any danger for hours on mm -hmm. end. So how do you feel being an introvert, um, you know, on the water or, you you know, how, how does that feel? It's definitely being with the crew on the ship is a challenge for an introvert because when we were sailing from New Orleans to Galveston, it was, I think, four days and three nights or maybe five days and four nights. I don't remember now. Um, but it's a long time to be with the same group of people in an enclosed space. Below decks is not a very relaxing place to be. There's not a lot of privacy. So I always felt like I needed a break from people. So I always volunteered for Bow Watch because, like you said, you're out there by yourself just focusing on the horizon and not what's happening behind you on the ship. And that's a great place to be. The, like, the best time I had on the entire voyage home from New Orleans was one morning I spent three hours slushing the foremast. So I was up aloft. 97 feet in the air by myself, nobody around, nothing but the horizon for, you know, 20, 25 miles. I couldn't hear people on deck unless they were specifically shouting up at me. And it was heaven. <laughs> I didn't have to talk to anybody. I was just by myself doing my job. Oh, that, that's so cool. And what's so funny is I always volunteered for Bow Watch as well um, on the Soren Larsen. And that I was about seven, I think it was seven days blue water. Um, oh, and nice. like, so most of the time it was, I think I took the four till eight or whatever it was watch, you know, mm -hmm. and it's just hours, isn't it? Doing the looking out there. And of course, most of the time there's nothing there at all. <laughs> Yeah, it does get kind of boring after a while. I was doing bow watch in one. I had the 8 to 12 watch. So mm. it was on 8 to 12 in the morning, 8 to 12 in the evening. 
and there's a, a fair amount of traffic in the Gulf because we have oil rigs and then the ships that go out to support the oil rigs. But they're way, way in the distance, so there really wasn't much to comment on. Um, but Galveston is also in the migratory bird path. Mm. And this was April, which was the spring migration. So we would see so many birds. I mean, we're 90 miles off the coast, and there's swallows and hummingbirds and warblers just flying. And uh, one of our officers was an avid birder, so... We'd call back and forth to each other on the radio about the birds we were spotting because there's just nothing on the ocean to see. Oh, wow. That's just so lovely. So you mentioned being up on uh, a loft, up, on, up mm-hmm. the rigging as such. And that was what scared me the most. I, I had a picture um, literally, I don't know, a foot and a half off the deck because I couldn't <laughs> go any higher. And lots of people went up all the way. So, you know, what does... What does scare you about the sailing or being out there? And or what are some common well not even common, but some fears around the ocean? Because as you said, it's not like you're going to be totally safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, sailing is inherently dangerous, no matter how many steps and precautions you take to make it safe. It's just it's not safe. Whether you're climbing aloft and you fighting the roll of the ship and holding on and you know fighting against gravity, basically, um, storms spring up that you don't expect, even with modern radar. I think probably the most frightening thing is the idea that you were out there by yourself. And yes, there are other ships in the vicinity, but they can't really see you. And if something goes wrong, you don't get a distress signal out in time, or it doesn't make sense, or there's so many things that can go wrong where you might end up in a life raft by yourself in the ocean. And it is incredibly hard to spot a small life raft in this vast ocean. So, I mean, on the Alyssa, we drill extensively. We do man overboard drills, fire drills, abandoned ship drills, so that we know what to do in an emergency. And that really helps allay the fears a little bit because I know, okay, if something happens, I know how to react. I trust my crewmates. I know that they will react properly because we've been drilling for so long. And we bring out a professional officer corps who, you know, we trust them to keep us out of danger. And if we do run into danger, we know they're going to take care of us and do the right thing and the best thing to keep us safe. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. And of course, if people do come out on the Alyssa or any of these other experiences, it's very safe. And there's lots of people who who can look after it after you. But I do think that part of the attraction is possibly the risk. It's doing something different, right? It's not being in your your office job. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like the first time I went climbing aloft, I was terrified and I almost didn't make it up off the rail, which is just, you know, a couple of feet off deck because all of a sudden that felt like such a huge height because I'd never done anything like that before. But you do it once and you survive and you realize, okay, maybe I can do this again. So you do it a second time, maybe go a little bit higher the second time. And it's just a matter of slowly building up that confidence and building up that strength in yourself and your capabilities. And then it's like anything in life, but I think it's a little easier to feel when you're doing something physical like that is you can see your growth over time and how you've improved and how you've gained so much more confidence because you're doing something risky and you're doing it. Mm. Well, I'm going to give it another go then next time. (laughs) 
Absolutely, you should. It's the best thing in the world. I totally will. Now, one thing that I think prevents a lot of people from going out on boats is is a fear of seasickness. Now, in a way that might sound minor, but having been seasick for probably 24 hours when we left, you know, view of land, um, I wasn't scared of the seasickness, but it's certainly not pleasant. So um, given that some people just have that, uh, what are some ways or some remedies or ways that you guys deal with that on on the bite yeah so there's a lot of medications that really help with that um i don't get seasick myself i know i'm really lucky in that but i've never been seasick Um, but a lot of our crew do get sick and there are wearable patches that you can get that are a slow release medication that people say work really well Um, there's pill types that you can take one of the best ways to overcome seasickness is just to throw up and then eat a sandwich. <laughs> it sounds terrible, but once you get that nausea out of you and then eat something, that helps a lot of people. Yeah, well, that's good. And certainly I've taken some of that, those medications. And actually, I've, because um, uh, you're a scuba diver as well, aren't you? Which is yes. which is cool. And I'm a scuba diver too. And I have had some of my worst seasickness going scuba diving. <laughs> so I wonder, oh, really? like, do you, um, wh- how does scuba diving fit into your sailing life? Um, or, you know, ha- have you integrated the two or dived off the ship? Or is, is that area um, a good area to dive as well? Uh, The Gulf Coast isn't great for diving, especially the immediate vicinity around Galveston. There are some dive spots um, maybe like 500 miles out that I haven't been to yet. But for the most part, you know, there's not a lot of diving happening around Texas. Uh, But scuba diving was one of those things that I've always wanted to do because I love swimming. I love the water. I want to see what's down there. But I never thought that I could do it because I'm a normal person. Normal people don't scuba dive, right? (laughs) Until I joined the Alyssa and I met a couple of other crewmates who dive. So they got me into it. And I've been on only one major dive trip so far, but I'm going on another one this summer. But just anything that gets me on or in the water, I love. Mm. It's interesting. It sounds like this whole experience has just given you so much confidence. It has. And that's something I didn't really expect. And I didn't really notice it happening until, you know, after a year or two on the Alyssa, all of a sudden I'm noticing I'm coming out of my shell quite a bit more than I was before. I'm much more adventurous. It's a different perspective, I think. Because now every time I'm thinking, okay, I really don't want to make this phone call. Phones are scary. I don't like calling people. (laughs) You know, there's this little anxiety with that. And I just tell myself, you know what? Last week you were 90 feet aloft hanging off the royal yard arm and you were fine. You can make a phone call. (laughs) Well, to be fair, I don't like making phone calls. So how we managed to get on the phone together... It's quite quite cool. But um, it's interesting. You've used lots of different language um, in this interview about the boat. And of course, boaty communities have language Mm -hmm. and there's names for different things that people who aren't in the community um, would use. But what are some of the other um, customs or things that you've noticed that are specific or unusual about the sailing community? Yeah, so one thing I've noticed that I think is very particular to sailing and I love so much is that if you sail, you are automatically part of a community. And sailors are very, very accepting 
of other people. We have so many different types of people on the crew, and everybody gets along. Everybody loves each other. Like We're like family, no matter how different we are. And I think you kind of have to be that way, because if you're sailing for days or weeks or months at a time with the same group of people, either you get along or you murder each other. There's really no no middle ground there. So I think this is something that's been going on for hundreds of years in the sailing community is that if you sail, you are just part of this community. And I visited a lot of other ships and maritime museums around the country and um, even one in Spain. And you just strike up a conversation with somebody there and it's like you've known them your whole life because you have the same hobby, you have the same interests and the same shared experiences. Mm. So I, I think that's pretty unique to sailing and it's fantastic. And there's a stereotype that sailors swear a blue streak. And that is so true. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. I've never been much of a a person to swear in life. Like, it's just not part of my vocabulary until I started sailing. (laughs) (laughs) But when you're, you know, aloft and you're fighting with a pin in a shackle that just doesn't want to come out, like, what do you say? (laughs) You just have to swear. That's brilliant. Oh, that, I wasn't expecting that, to be, to be honest. <laughs> but that's, that's very cool. And what about some of the superstitions? Um, because, you know, there, there certainly are things that people, like you mentioned birds. I mean, the albatross is probably the most mm-hmm. famous sort of superstition. But what, what have you noticed anything interesting there? Yeah, especially with my crewmates who have been part of the maritime industry for their whole lives. There's some weird little quirks and superstitions that you pick up on. Um, umbrellas are super unlucky. Never bring an umbrella aboard a ship. I mean, that has practical applications because it's going to get tangled <laughs> in the rigging, but also it's just considered very unlucky to bring an umbrella on board ship. Um, cats are very lucky. If you have a cat, you have a lucky ship. I've met a couple of ship cats and they're always super sweet. Um, the number 13, it seems very stereotypical, but the number 13 is super unlucky. When I was learning how to do a round seizing, this is a way of tying or tying two lines together so that they don't slip. Um, our port captain was teaching me how to do it, and he goes, okay, it's going to take about 12 or 14 turns, not 13. And I said, not 13? He goes, not 13. Why would you do that to us? Ah. Not 13. <laughs> Oh, that's that is really interesting. Um, and then I wanted to ask you about more books. So circling back to the books, can you? Re- I mean, you you talked about the Charlotte Doyle book um, and the Patrick O'Brien series. Are there any other books about tall ships or sailing that you would recommend? Yeah, so those are both fantastic books, um, especially Patrick O'Brien's books. If you want to get an immersive experience in what sailing during the Napoleonic Wars was like, like there's no comparison to those books. Um, other good books, Alexander Kent is a very popular author. I haven't read any of his books, but I know a lot of people who really love them. Tall Ships Down is another great book. It's nonfiction. I'm blanking on the author right now, um, but it's a collection of stories about tall ships that sank in the 20th century and what contributed to their sinking, what happened to the crew, things like that. So that's a really sobering look at sailing and the more dangerous aspects of sailing, for sure. Mm. Right, so this has been so fascinating. I could talk to you forever, but where can people find you and also the Alyssa if they want to come on down? 
Sure. Um, the best place to find out the basic information, like the museum hours and address and things like that, is going to be galvestonhistory.org. And you can also see the other properties that GHF owns. But for more up-to-date information, pictures from our sailing, um, announcements about the events that we've got going on year-round, and we've got some really cool stuff coming up in the, in the coming years, Facebook and Instagram are the, going to be the best places for those. It's just 1877 Talsha Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Carrie. That was great. Thanks so much. This was fun. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.